Well, it's lovely to see so many of you again, some of you and others for the first time. I think most of you know that I'm Asha Swami and I'm here in Mumbai for a month or for three more weeks, a little more, almost a month. And uh, it's a great, my great pleasure to share with all of you. <clears throat> Yesterday we launched this book about Swami Kriyananda, which is my present claim to fame. So, <laughs> let me just drink it. Our topic today is how to love what you have to do anyway, the laws of Dharma. I appreciate that the reading from Whispers happens to be one of my favorites, um, especially the part about <clears throat> virtue seems poisonous at the beginning, but turns sweet. You know, non-virtue seems sweet at the beginning and turns poisonous. It's just sort of the uh, it, it's Master's way of articulating that verse in the Bhagavad Gita where it says, what is night to the worldly man is day to the yogi. What is day to the worldly man is night to the yogi. There's this strange perception often at the beginning of the spiritual path that rather than gaining, we're actually losing. Um, it does look that way because we're very attached to our habits and our comforts and our way of doing things, and when the idea that happiness is a choice, but it's a choice based on self-discipline, there's a sort of beginning point where we think that's not such a good idea. And there has to be some powerful motivating force that it's going to move us in the right direction. Sometimes it's catastrophe, which is Divine Mother's way of getting us to act. And sometimes it's exaltation. Something really glorious happens and we realize that we want more and more of that. I've been very impressed every time I've been in this room and sure join Narayani, start chanting how marvelously you all join in and how powerfully the, that flow of energy can go. I'm also very impressed by the power of chanting, just inherently and the power of Swami Kriyananda's music when you either listen to it or sing it. I recently was going through, at the beginning of this year, I had some difficult personal adventures that I had to go through, and I was not uh, going through them very successfully. And a friend of mine who is the director of our choir and has been a musician ever since she was a child, she asked me if I was singing Swamiji's songs and I said, no, not particularly. So she selected one out of his whole repertoire, and it's, a, it's actually a children's song. It's little Kathy went dancing, went dancing, went dancing. She went out in the garden. She saw a small robin. She invited the robin to dance with her. The robin thought he would look silly if he did it. <laughs> she persuades him. He dances. Everybody thinks that the world is a really happy place. My whole life, you know, is falling to pieces. My life work is threatened. I don't know what my direction is. And she suggests I sing about this dopey little robin. <laughs> but I wasn't finding any other solutions on my own. So I decided I would try it. And it was amazing to me that as long as I was singing about the robin and I was with Kathy dancing in the garden, it was impossible for me to simultaneously be worried and unhappy. It was the music just swept in when I'm singing, not just listening, but singing. It forced me into that very free, childlike, 
here I am, just me and the robin, and we're out in the garden, and this is God's lila. As soon as I would stop that, the, the water of my own anxiety would rush back into my brain, but it was astonishing to me how I could just move one in and out, depending on the music that was running through me. Master makes the interesting comment that chanting is half the battle, is how he puts it. And we've all, many of us, have heard that phrase for a really long time. And, I mean, I've heard it for decades, and always, I've even repeated it. You know, like, just say it to people, like, if you want to develop devotion and so on, how important it is. But I have to say, I learned it on a whole new level, what Master was actually talking about. Because the interesting fact of our existence is that we are only what we tune into. We have this strong, total delusion that we are some kind of a fixed entity. I mean, we do have physical bodies, and those bodies do have a beginning and an ending and a continuing recognition. We can, we can recognize each other by the bodies we're in, as a rule. Although Swami Kriyananda was very interesting in this respect. Of course, he met, by the end, thousands, tens of thousands of people. But he would also say he would recognize, well, just to back up a little bit, I was telling, I think, last night or the night before here, about the fact that in all the years I knew Swami Kriyananda, he never made any reference to my age. And when I thanked him for that, because it was very respectful of him, since I was quite a bit younger and less experienced, his comment was, I never noticed. He said, I, I never look at people's physical bodies, but in another context, in another context exactly, um, there was this couple that were not getting along very well. And I went shopping with her and she was going to buy her husband a shirt. And remarkably, when I suggested this one would match his eyes, she wasn't sure what color his eyes were. Yeah, I, I thought, mm, maybe that's why you're having a little trouble. <laughs> but that wasn't the moment to say that. So I made this comment at the dinner table with Swamiji and a few other people because to me it was remarkable. And then Swami gets, got this look, which over the years I began to understand when I was somehow missing the point. When I thought I had a point, but somehow I was missing the point, it wasn't, it, he wouldn't necessarily speak it explicitly, but there would just be this sort of little disturbance in the field, you know. <laughs> And I'd try to tune in. That was often, that is how um, great souls, even now, I mean, even in this minute, this afternoon I'm going to be talking about higher guidance. And, and we tend to think that the higher realms are just like this realm, you know, really concrete and exact. But it's not at all true. And I certainly learned that from Swami. It was just nuances of vibration a lot of the time which is, was, was more explicit than words. So here I am at the table and there's this force field um, jiggling in the room. And then Swami says, I never know what color people's eyes are. And there's this woman, Seva, who was very, um, she, she was his right hand for many, many years. Jyotish was, well, Jyotish was on the right, she was on the left. They were both together like this. Her salient feature was these is these huge brown eyes that she he has. So I'm mean, known her at that point for many many years, and she just happened to be sitting next to him. 
he said, and he looked at Seva and he said, Seva, for example, what color are her eyes? And he sort of looked at her like this, like she was like a specimen under a microscope. <laughs> you know, like he was really trying hard to focus in. He'd been looking at this woman for 10 years, working closely with her. He looked at her like with this whole different view. And he said, oh, they're brown. <laughs> you sort of, you know, these are the many moments with Swamiji where you realize that you might be sitting at the same dinner table, but you are not existing on the same plane of consciousness. And then he went on to say this. He said, I never look at a person's eyes. I look through them. I look through them to the consciousness that they express. Eyes are the window of the soul, is what people say, but apparently, literally. And Swamiji would also say, when he would meet someone after a time, and I realized when he said that, he meant after a week, after a month, or a year, or an incarnation or two, after I meet someone, after a time of separation, sometimes at first I don't recognize them. But when I look into their eyes, they come into focus, is how he put it. A friend of mine who didn't see Swamiji all that often commented how many times he'd seen that. That Swami would sort of look at him, he would remind Swamiji what his name was, and then he could tell that, it, that Swami didn't know who he was, and then it would sort of click, oh yes, there you are, you know, in a, in a gap between when he told him his name, but the name didn't, rec didn't register until the consciousness registered. Now, this is a long story to say all we ever are is our consciousness. And of course, if we start factoring death into the story, which we always ought to factor death into the story, because the fixed material part of ourself, this body, it can dissolve in an instant, <clears throat> but nothing happens to us. Swamiji, I remember, it was actually right after my mother died, I happened to be where, with Swami at the time that my mother died, and he just sort of casually said like this, nothing happens when you die, nothing happens. I was asking him sort of how I should relate to my mother now that she was off, off this planet, and. Would it help her for me to remember her? Would it be better for me to let her go? Would she know what I was thinking? You know, those were in important questions to me. I wanted to, I wanted her spiritual freedom. I didn't want to bind her with my thinking. I also wanted to be appropriate in my duty to her, but I also didn't feel the need to carry it on now that the bond of mother-daughter was severed by the death of her body. And that was when Swami said, oh, nothing happens when you die. Just to finish the story, because you're probably curious, he also said that my mother, who was very intelligent and very sweet, but not spiritually inclined at all, she wasn't afraid of dying, but when I asked her, I said, Mother, cause are you afraid of dying? Oh, she said, no, but I just hate to think of all this going on and my not being here as to be part of it again. <laughs> We were going into an American political cycle and she was going to miss the whole thing, you know. Sure, Mom, whatever you want. But he said, quote, at her level of consciousness, she'll only vaguely remember what was going on here, you know. Now, of course, soul bonds are something else. So, you know, if we see each other again and look into each other's eyes, there will be a sense that I know you and I love you, of course. But mother-daughter parent-child is a physical relationship 
to define love into that form is terminated at physical death. I know this is a complicated question that I've accidentally gotten myself involved in here, but soul bond is something else. So that's how we have to work with this. We can talk more about this at another time. But the, the point that I'm really trying to make here is we are consciousness. And consciousness is a vibration that exists on a certain level. I was talking about Swamiji sitting at the table with him, well, many, many times over the years, realizing that we were physically in the same place, but the vibrations that we were living on were completely different. So what this tells us is that in any circumstance, we think it's the physical conditions, but what's actually determining everything is the vibration we choose to attune to. So the question of what we ought to be doing or not doing, we ought to be tuning in to the right vibration. And Dharma is simply that which makes it easier for us to do that because it's more consistent with where our soul is trying to go. That does not necessarily mean it's easier, but nor does that mean it's harder. I remember I got into what the Catholics, because they've been around so long, they've actually named all of these things. They call over-scrupulosity. If I want to do it, that must mean God doesn't want me to do it. If I'm miserable, that must mean it's God's will. And I remember Swami watching me tie myself into knots. And then the word I use is he pleaded with me. He said, Asha, God does not necessarily want you to be unhappy. He said, that's your idea. It took me a long time to understand what he meant because I was tuning into a vibration that was making me miserable. It wasn't what I was doing. It wasn't God's will. It was of all the possible vibrations in the universe, I think I'll take the one that makes me unhappy. I think I'll take the one that makes me feel insecure and inadequate. Inadequate is a really popular one. <laughs> a friend of mine had a great syndrome of just always feeling no matter what she did, it was never good enough, which is not unusual, especially in competitive societies like we li live in. She was delighted when we hit upon a mantra for her. I am perfectly adequate, she said. <laughs> and she would repeat it to herself. I am perfectly adequate. I am not the best, I am not the worst, I am simply perfectly adequate. It was progress from God doesn't love me because I'm so incapable or whatever it was. So Dharma, we make complicated because we make it a material world decision. And yes, of course, sometimes we do have to make decisions. Let's not be naive. We do have choices about many things that we have to do. But the only thing that our soul cares about, the only thing that God and Guru care about, is what we are doing with our consciousness. Because ultimately, every single form that we have right now will go away. Within a hundred years, none of us will be in our physical bodies anymore. Within a thousand years, probably nothing on this planet will be here anymore. And all of the things that we carefully build up, goodness, you all know that in India more than anyone knows that. Your, your one civilization is built upon another. 
and the greatness and the importance is just washed away by the sands of time. But what lasts literally for eternity is the vibration of our consciousness. And even much more deeply, how much do we love? How much do we serve? And in every situation, that is the question. God really doesn't have an opinion about the rest of it because that's not, that's not his department, so to speak. You know, his department is our soul welfare. I know Swamiji um, would talk about the fact that his primary responsibility with people was just to maintain a relationship in which he could help them. And sometimes people would make terrible mistakes and he would try to, mistakes because, this is what I was wanting to say, a mistake is not like a catastrophe. Mistake is just doing something that's going to make it a little harder for you to hold your consciousness in the right place. But nothing can make it impossible for us to hold our consciousness because in the end that's all we have. And in the end that's the one thing we can control. Yes, it's easier to control it if the challenges are not overwhelming. But unfortunately, if God wants to teach us to be heroes in controlling our consciousness, he will pile a lot of weight on us. For a very brief period of time in my life, I actually went to the gym and lifted weights. I found it, I mean, for me, it was so unspeakably dull. I just couldn't bear it. But I learned enough to know that you have to keep adding weight. <coughs> You know, oh look, I'm good at this. I'm really good at this. You know, I just go and I just do this. And then I, no, that's not actually what it's meant to be. Everybody would think that you're just being foolish and wasting your time and your membership if you just get the smallest weight and prove how good you are at it. So every time you go, if somebody's guiding you and you're not just left to your own devices, they just make it a little harder. Because they make it a little harder, we get a little stronger. And then pretty soon that which seemed impossible is not impossible at all. It's just natural to me. Now, any mother or father or good teacher doesn't want you to just stop where you are right now. You know, often little children just, why do I need to learn? Why do I need to learn math? Why do I need to do anything? From the parent's point of view, there was a, a girl at Ananda village who was very devotional when she was very small. And she particularly loved the Virgin Mary. So her mother gave her many stories about the different times that the Virgin Mary had appeared, especially to children. So this little girl was about six. She calculated it out and she noticed that much of the time the Virgin Mary appeared to children who were tending sheep or goats. <laughs> So she decided her ambition in life was to become a goat herder because that would increase her chances of seeing the Virgin Mary. <laughs> and so she tried to explain to her mother that she wasn't going to school anymore. She just wanted to go somewhere and learn how to take care of sheep and goats. You know, it all sounded quite reasonable and was totally charming, of course. And gradually she was persuaded to do something else with her life. But th this is how, this is about how informed our own thinking is. And our dharma in life is to love and to serve and to gain mastery over our consciousness, to be able to tune into that vibration which, what? Makes us aware of the joy of God. That's all. 
you know, my, my little saga that fortunately now is in the past that I had to go through at the beginning of this year, I just lost connection with the joy of God. I began to think in all the ways that, you know, we all think. Nobody loves me. People ought to understand me better. This is too hard. Why is this happening? You know, this isn't right. All of these things. Then I went out in the garden with the little robin. You know, and I was dancing in the garden with the little robin. Which is more true, actually. You know? Because in the end, all we have is our consciousness. And if we respond properly to life's situations, and properly means not to forget our relationship with God. I recently saw a documentary, I seem to be talking about the Virgin Mary, who is, is not, some, not an image of the divine that I'm normally tuned into, but right now. And um, it was about the visions in Medjugorje, in the former Yugoslavia. She's been appearing there for 30 years to these people who started out as children and are now grown up, grown-ups with children of their own and she's still appearing. And one of those visionaries made this wonderful statement. She was talking to a man who was an atheist. And she said, Mother Mary, she always called her mother, Mother never calls people unbelievers. You know, there in the Catholic tradition, you're a believer, you're not a believer. She never calls people unbelievers. She just refers to people who are unaware of how much God loves them. Now, isn't that a marvelous way to think about it? Like, are we unaware that God loves us, or do we remember that God loves us? We pray every prayer, Divine Mother, Heavenly Father. Now, there's two ways that repeated prayers can be done. One is we try to get them out of the way. You know, Mother, Father, Jesus, Babaji, Krishna, Lahiri, you know. <laughs> and the other way we do it is every time we're so surprised, there they are. Now, because I am really here with Mother Mary, I'll do one more. A friend of mine, her mother was a devout Catholic. Actually, two of her children were part of Ananda, so she's uh, she's a very devoted mother, but she's a very devout Catholic, particularly devoted to Mary. When she was dying, all her children were with her, including the two who were Master's disciples. And, she, and at the just a couple of minutes before she died, she sat up in bed and said, Hi, Mary! Hi, Mary! Just like this. Just like a little child. Because apparently the Virgin Mary had come to get her was just right at the end. She was so excited. Then she lay down and moments later she passed from her body. But that's the relationship we should have. So when we pray, we're not getting it out of the way. It's, hi, hello, hello Divine Mother, I'm so glad to see you. If it was your own living mother and you loved her deeply, you wouldn't greet her just to get it out of the way. <laughs> You would greet her because your heart leaps up in joyous recognition. That's what's being asked of us. We are children of a Heavenly Father and a Divine Mother, and whatever we experience of love in the human world is just the merest symbolic representation of how we are really loved. And that's our only job in life, to not be unbelievers 
but to either be aware of how much God loves us and to live in the bliss of that comfort and security or to tune into lots of other things which will make us worry. And in the end, who would we want to be? And even in the practical world, have we ever found that worry, anxiety, stress, and self, self, uh, you know, despair has ever helped us find a solution? What always helps us find a solution is the freedom of heart, of confidence and love, and knowing also that God not only loves me, but he loves all these other people who are tormenting me. <laughs> and we have to begin to try to see it from her point of view. That's what she asks of us, that's what he asks of us. And that's how we get to love what we have to do anyway. Because why not? Why not? It's the only job we've been given and we might as well do it well. Swami said to me once, you don't get out of karma by doing it badly. <laughs> Which is something really to keep in mind. All right, God bless you.